Hey listeners, before we start the show, we just want to let you know that this is a rather heavy episode with a lot of potentially triggering or troubling discussion about violence and some other heavy themes. So if you don't think that'd be something that you're comfortable listening to, maybe consider checking out another one of our episodes. But otherwise, on to the show. Guys, that was quite a battle, huh? Yeah, you know, pretty standard, I think. Yeah, pretty, uh, pretty run-of-the-mill raid, I'd say. That's fair. Yeah, I just, I really, I feel like it got my blood going. You know, I was, I was out there just hitting guys and swinging my axe and swinging my sword and swinging another guy's spear. It was great. You know, with us berserkers. A raid is a pretty subjective experience, if I say so. That's fair. That makes a lot of sense. That's right. But I must say, you were really, like, in the zone back there. Oh, thanks. I really appreciate that. I'm glad you noticed. I've been really trying to elevate my Berserker game, if you know what I mean. You know, there was just, like, one thing about the raid that I have to say was kind of a downer. Oh, yeah? What's that? Well... I don't like to speak ill of a fellow berserker. No, of course not. But (laughs) Omelette is really kind of like bringing down the whole vibe of our group. Oh, how so? Okay, for example, last night when we were doing our wolf howling ritual. Yeah. Like when we were all growling to get ourselves like really into it. He just, I didn't feel like his heart was in it. He was just kind of mumbling the growls. Yeah, but like the howling, he he seemed to really be like thinking about something else. His mind was just on other stuff. You know, now that you mention it, I have noticed that he seems kind of distracted when we're out there in the blood and the mud and the guts. Yeah, it's like, okay, we do this all the time. We're all tired, dude. Like... If you aren't as into it, it makes it harder for me to really get into the Berserker Rage. Yeah, I can see that. I I gotta say, like, when we're out there, like, killing and slaughtering, it really seems like he wants to hurt people. That's a good point, yeah, and that's not cool. Like, this isn't about that. This is about killing. Right, exactly. You don't need to, like, maim and go crazy. Just kill people... <laughs> and then take the rest hostage. That's what we're here for. Standard well, stuff. If we're going to kill everybody, what's the point? I mean, how do you even gain wealth? Am I fighting alongside a beast or a man over here? Like, I can't even tell sometimes. Oh, 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 oh wait, here he comes. <sighs> oh, hey, Omelith, how's it going? Hey, bud, good, good performance out there. Loving it. Mmm. Oh, uh, I guess we'll talk more later. <laughs> All right, bye, Omelith. Uh, you see what I'm saying, guys? He, he's just not himself. Yeah, I, I totally get what you're saying now. Yeah, he was just grunting at us. like. Yeah, it's just like when we're going into our battle rage. He just seems so angry. Totally. I don't know what we're going to do with them, guys.
Hello, fantasy fans, and welcome to Swords and Satire, the podcast where we turn low fantasy into high art. I'm your dungeon manager, Jamie Molkel, here with my berserk co-hosts. I'm Chelsea Hollowell, and you know, I just want to fish on the river and have a peaceful life, and uh, you know, it's usually pretty chill out here. There's not usually Vikings that come through. Nice. That's great. That seems like a really good life. Very peaceful. I don't even have to like be on my guard at all. Hey, what are those ships over there doing? Uh oh. Uh, Sheesh. (laughs) Well, that sounds like a pretty serene life. But uh, (laughs) who am I? Who are you? I'm a Jack Olander, a magical sword. A magical sword, but there's a catch. If your enemy has a magic sword, I won't unsheath. Oh, oh. that's a bummer. It's like performance anxiety. Yeah. Because they're going to be comparing me to them. I totally like, get that. Like, against ma- and normal swords, no problem. It also seems kind of like if it's like not the right time of day or night, you seem a little shy then too. You know, it's just like part of the part of the like Smithian rhythm or whatever. There are times where <laughs> I'm just not as, you know, sharp. Right. I mean, we all have those days. Yes. Oh, I see what you did there. Sharp and your sword. I got it. Right. Yes. That's a little that's a little fun thing we do. <laughs> little sword humor. Yeah, that's right. When we gather around the smithy, whoa, are we, whoa. (laughs) Clang, clang. (laughs) Clang, clang, clang goes the smithy. That's right. Well, guys, I'm really excited today because this is the last movie for our Scandinavian Northern Viking movie month. That's been a real blast. Yeah. And today we are going to be talking about the brand new Robert Eggers' film that just came out, The Northman, which is a movie I've been very excited uh, for ever since I heard it announced. Yeah. We love the Egger. Yeah. We do. This Egg. is <laughs> This is the director of some of our favorite movies here, The Witch, or The Vavitch, if you will, The Lighthouse. And now The Northman. And now The Northman. You know it's an Egger film when there's a the in the name. True. And if it has either uh, Anya Taylor-Joy or Willem Dafoe, I guess. Yeah, or both. <laughs> or both, yeah. This movie uh, brings together the best of both Egger worlds. Yes. Oh my god, is it a cinematic universe? It also has it could be. both the parents from The Witch as minor roles in this yes, film. Yes, that's true. true. Is the mom there? Yeah. Yes. Oh, wow. Not really a main character, but she's there. Nice. She exists. But guys, before we start talking about the movie, we should probably give a shout out to our patrons. Our patrons? That's right. Those are the people who support us every month by going to patreon.com slash swords and satire and sign up to give us a monthly donation. And in exchange, they get some awesome bonus episodes and some cool perks. Damn, they sound pretty cool. I love them for that. (laughs) But enough about our favorite people in the world. Let's start talking about The Northman. So like I said, The Northman was directed by Robert Eggers. It stars Alexander Skarsgård, Anya Taylor-Joy, Ethan Hawke, Nicole Kidman, Willem Dafoe, Clay's Bang, 
a ton of other big buff beefy dudes. <laughs> yes. Some with or without facial features. That is true. <laughs> that is true. Many with facial hair. Yes. Yes. Almost completely. Yeah. I would say. I mean, everybody could be said to have a beard. It's just some people have it on top of their head and other people have it on their face, too. <laughs> Is that how it works? Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. Okay, very interesting. It's all beards. <laughs> all hair of the beard, huh? Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I've got a ton to say about this movie, but first, we should probably get to that summary that Chelsea's just been champing at the bit to give us. That's right. So, the Northman is a bloody vengeance film, and it's also a tragedy. Um, and so we'll get into that. So, geez, Chelsea already giving her review. That's rough. <laughs> so we have Omelet, the I guess main character there, and his dad is King Ethan Hawke. King Wolfman. Raven Man. King Ravenman. King Arvindil. His mother, of course, is Queen... Gudrun. Gudrun, played by Nicole Kidman. Queen Nicole. (laughs) And his father is uh, Fjolnir. His uncle is Fjolnir. And his uncle is Fjolnir. What a great guy his uncle is, huh? Yeah! Uh, Omelette's dad comes home from Viking. They seem to like each other. The mom, not so much. Uh, more later on that. Uh, the dad was fatally wounded, but he's trying to cover it up. And it was a, a You'll gut, get better. Uh, it was a gut wound, so it's taking a while to kill him. As it should, finally... Something in media depicting a slow death by a gut wound. I know Chelsea's just been waiting for that to show up in something. <laughs> so there's a cool ritual, coming of age ritual, with Omelet and his father. Omelet, Amleth, whatever. And uh, the. Omelet. <laughs> the... That's the Veggie Tales version. <laughs> Um, there's also a lot of burping and farting in this ritual, and, um, it's led by the- This movie is swords and satire approved. Yes, exactly. Um, the ritual is led by the sacred fool, who is played by Willem Dafoe. What's the fool's name again? Willem Dafoe. Amir the Fool. And so- Now, there will be a test at the end of this episode to remember all the names. Yeah, I can't even remember it. We have to keep a list open for me to follow. Because after it I, it comes out of my mouth, it just leaves my brain. You can just say Defoe. Okay. Well, during the ritual, father and son connect on their family tree and have a vision about it. And afterwards, the uncle's like, I'm not having any of this. I want to be the king. And he, It's my turn to be the king. He gets a bunch of his men to, like, stabby the king with their spears. Yay! And- Regicide right in the very beginning. I love it. <laughs> And the uncle comes in and uh, relieves the king of his head. Awesome. Uh, That's Fjolnir, is the uncle. And uh, he takes over. Boo! New king! Fuck that guy! He 
takes Queen Gudrun for his own wife and uh, orders Omelette. Wait, what's his Amleth. Amleth to be killed. And uh, he is crafty and is able to get away. He <laughs> uses his red cloak of stealth to yeah, escape. Yeah. And um, we cut to many years later when he's kind of part of a, you know, a berserker gang. You know, the standard berserker gang doing berserker stuff. I was really unclear on who they worked for, but they... uh... They're independent contractors. (laughs) Yeah, I guess so. They do a raid on a village, which I... Independent kill tractors? (laughs) Okay. They do a raid on a village, which I found out later I think was a Christian village, but... I'm not sure, but it is Russian. Or what would at the time been had would have been the land of the Rus. Yes, exactly. That's right. And so they just totally take over in this crazy, brutal battle scene raid, and they take a lot of uh, hostages or prisoners who are going to be slaves. Uh, just a quick note: Vikings were problematic. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, uh, Omleth realizes that some of the slaves are going to be taken to his uncle. In Iceland. So he disguises himself as a slave and gets on the boat and travels to Iceland and is sold to his uncle along with a few of the other slaves, including a long-haired Olga, played by Anya. The only other distinct character in the um, coterie here. Yes. And together they hatch a plot to torment his uncle's farm over several months. And they slowly like kill off people and torment everyone and cause a lot of problems. Also, I was joking earlier that uh, Amla's father and uncle were the king, but they were actually just chieftains. The real king of the region, King Hakon, actually took over their chiefdom after Fjolnir killed killed off the other king and was just like, nah, fuck you guys. You can go like live in Iceland where it sucks. Yeah. So they have a small like farm, um, like homestead. So unfortunately not nearly enough regicide for my taste. During the raid and uh, later when Omleth is tormenting his uncle's farm, he has a couple of, uh, spiritual experiences with witches of different genders and kind of befriends a fox guy. He even gets to meet Bjork. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, meaning the fox is cool too. Has an interesting, maybe, catabasis where he gets a magical sword. You want to tell the listeners a little bit about catabases? We will in the delve. And then, um, eventually, basically, everybody. Except for Omleth's uncle and the slaves are killed. And he and Omleth have like a showdown. And Omleth helped Olga escape. They had kind of like a love thing going on. And they fucked. Yeah. And they loved each other too, though. And he helped. That's love in Viking. He helped her escape and he was going to leave with her. But then when he had a vision that she was pregnant with twins, he was like, oh, my uncle will never let us rest in peace like he'll come after us so i have to go kill him before he kills us this movie very nicely embodies my favorite joke did you hear about the norwegian man who loved his wife 
so much that he almost told her. Yes, (laughs) it does. It's good. Um, She begs him not to go back and to choose her, but he wants to choose both. He wants the best of both worlds, love and murder. In the end, it wasn't to be. He and his uncle fight next to a volcano, and um, they strike each other down at the same time. And Omleth has a final vision of going into Valhalla, being taken there by a Valkyrie. And his bloodline continuing with a little princeling, or sorry, with a little princessling, who will be the Maiden King. Exactly. So that's cool. And um, he's able to cry again on his death because I think he realized he chose wrong. So that's the tragedy. It's part of the tragedy of this film. That's right. He sheds two tears in the film. The, the last tear he will shed in weakness and the tear he shed in victory at the end. <laughs> in being stabbed in the chest tear. That's not weakness, though. <laughs> That's not, I'm not crying because it hurts. I'm crying because I won. <laughs> Limiting masculinity. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, we can get into that. And we will. All right. Well, uh, on that note, why don't we head into the delve? Welcome to the Delve, where we venture deep into the themes, scenes, and lore of the North Man. So, guys, what's the deal with toxic or limiting masculinity? Well, it basically forces men to put their feelings in a little box and lock it away and then never express anything except for anger. (laughs) Amleth locked it inside of his chest, and when the sword pierced his breastbone, it opened the box. Oh, there you go. (laughs) And, um, yeah, the only acceptable things to express are anger and violence. And, uh... That perpetuates the cycle of hatred and violence. Yeah, Amleth seems pretty aware of the fact that the cycle of violence is going to continue as long as he's alive. Like, he exacts revenge on his father's killer, kind of. He ends up having to kill basically all of his remaining family to do it, and he dies in striking the final blow, but he leaves Olga who is pregnant on a boat to uh, another kingdom because he feels like if he leaves Fjolnir alive, then his children will never have a chance to escape from the cycle of violence. But they probably still won't anyways because of the culture they live in. Yeah, that's true. And so the tragedy is bound up in these gender roles that are culturally defined. and. They're kind of bound to these ideas of honor and duty and what is the correct way to die. Yes. And it's all bound up in gender roles as well, all these concepts. And so, like, his father, we can see the king instilling it in Amleth. Um, And I felt really sad while we were watching it. He was saying, I want you to avenge my death. Right. And you need to kill whoever's killed me. And you need to swear it to me now. And it's, 
and he loves his father and so he wants to be the person that his father wants him to be so he agrees without thinking yeah king ethan hawk and by that i mean chieftain ethan hawk although he's uh listed as the king on imdb which is maybe where it gets confusing um <laughs> seems to know that he's gonna get killed he knows he's going to die but he also is like i can't die a straw death and that is when somebody dies like on their bed or straw mat yeah um he wants to die in battle with a sword in his hand because in the Viking culture, that is how you get into Valhalla. Right. And that is the preferable place to be where you can continue feasting and fighting. In the Sounds afterlife, great. In the afterlife, rather than going to hell with one L uh, or Helheim. Which is honestly just kind of a chill place for the most part. A lot of, a <laughs> I lot see of... what you did there. Chill. Because it's Vikings? Because it's supposed to be cold. Oh, well, yeah, that too. <laughs> it's just always like nighttime in winter. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Kind of sounds nice, honestly. Yeah. You just get the vibe there. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you literally can party with the goddess hell. That's she true. throws frequent banquets for the dead. Yeah. A lot of ideas about afterlife that get put into, you know, media in general portray like a really bad place for you know a chunk of people but that wasn't what hell was in the norse mythology and this movie seems to kind of fall into that trap too yeah Yeah. oh you mean at the end yeah they talk about how they're gonna fight at the gates of hell and then it is basically a fight on mustafar so a fiery uh battle in smoke it's like that wouldn't be the viking concept of hell necessarily it would be more likely the gates to um Muspelheim. Yeah. That's right. Decidedly not the Norse hell. Yeah. More more closely to, like, the fanfic Christian hell. Yeah, 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 Dante's version of hell. Yes. Yeah. But the tragedy also lies in this kind of lucid moment that Omleth has when he's talking to Olga after he was captured at one point on the farm. Um, he was captured because he thought she was running away, uh, but found out later she was just escaping and that she came back for him. When he realizes that she came back for him, his affection for her grows and he realizes he's falling in love with her. Yeah. And he has this lucid moment where he says, you know, I don't have to continue on this path. We can be together. And she's supportive of that. She just wanted to get away from servitude and and slavery. And so that's why she was in on the planet torment the farm. Well, yeah, I mean, she was very okay with tormenting the people who literally made her a slave. But as soon as they got away, she didn't want to like go back and continue it. And no, she wanted to live their lives and they were going to get away. Typically living things don't like slavery. It's true. fun fact. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. <laughs> It's a good thing for Amleth that Odin saved him from being uh, hung up and almost killed, too. So That's right. <laughs> That's right. So when they're on the boat and they kiss and he has the vision of her being pregnant, she hadn't told him yet. And she admitted that she was. And he said, I had a vision of you having two, so twins. And one was a male, one was female. And the female child is like kind of prophesied to be a maiden king. 
Very cool. Very progressive. And he saw that in the vision. Feminism is when the war band leader is a woman. (laughs) And the brother, I'm assuming, is totally cool with it. He's like, I'm not the leader type. She's perfect for this, you know, assumedly. Well, they're they're twins, so, you know, they'll hopefully be pretty close. Yeah. But it's a tragic moment because Olga is begging him not to go back because that's when he realizes, oh... We're going to have a family. My uncle's going to come after us no matter what because of what I did. And the cycle of violence is going to continue. Yeah, well, he believes that it will follow him. Yeah, and he could be correct. Yeah, he references that he was given a choice of destiny to support his loved ones or to kill his enemies. And he's like, I picked both. And then he pieces out, right? (laughs) Yeah. He kind of decides to set up his loved ones to have a better life, hopefully. Yes. And then he's going to go continue, finish off that cycle of violence. Exactly. And he says, what a fool I was to think I could run from my fate. Right. But it's really sad because he could have chosen to leave. That's right. And we should also tell where this prophecy came from. Bjork. That's right. After he is with the Berserkers early in the film, we didn't mention, I don't think, too in-depth at least. Not yet. The scene with Bjork. And when Bjork tells you something, you listen. Yeah. They burned down, the Berserkers burned down a thatched roof with people inside of it. Yes. And later in the night, when Amleth is walking around in the moonlight, he goes inside that building and he sees a blind... Shaman woman, a blind seer. Whose eyes they took. That's right. Yeah. And she she's the one who tells Amleth the prophecy of you're going to go find your uncle in the land across the sea, right? And you're going to fight on a lake of fire. And uh just all this crazy stuff using this magic sword and all Yeah. Very cool prophecy language. And she shows him earlier in the film when he is a boy in the uh, ritual of kings he's crying and the i think it's the blessed fool says this is the last tear you shed in weakness right it's shown he like like pulls it off his face and it's like a crystal tear. yeah and then later when he's an adult and he's getting this prophecy from bjork she has it and puts it in his hand she goes, there it is, right? Yeah. <laughs> Don't forget the promise you made. And also that scene with Bjork is really cool. It's all shot in black and white to yeah. represent how he's walking into this ashen place, right? Like the ashes are still falling from them burning down this building full of people. Right. It's also to separate it from a normal experience and to show that it has some kind of spiritual or otherworldly aspect to it. Yeah, and they do that again later in the Barrow fight, where yeah. it's more desaturated color. Right. Yeah. So I thought that was really cool. And then she disappears. I know. And yeah. Bjork looks awesome in this role with like this awesome headdress and these cowrie shells hanging in front of her gouged out eyes. It's an eye curtain. Yeah. Which yeah. Um, many shamans often wear to help them focus while they're on a journey. That's right. And her headdress is like a half sun made out of wheat. Which yes, is really it cool. was very cool. And she was spinning wool. 
like one of the Norns. Like, yes. Because it seemed like she was uh, somebody who specifically communicated with the Norns. She was like a seer or a prophetess. And the Norns are the weavers of fate in Norse mythology who weave out your life's thread and story. Yes. And give you your fate. And once she leaves and she tells him to go, it shows the hut in color again. And you can really see how it's been like ruined. And she might have been dead and that could have been her spirit talking to him. So jumping back to the scene at the end in the ship when he's taking leave of Olga, like the tragedy is that he almost saw his way out of this cycle of violence and this limiting form of masculinity and being in more of a supportive role um, as like a father and a husband. But then the tragedy is that he was still trapped. Right. Mentally. by this. I, I don't think he could have had that peaceful life that he wanted to have. I don't think his mind would let him give up his vengeance. And it, he could be right. It could be that his uncle would come after him. Even if he didn't, like, I feel like to me, the implication is that whatever Fjolnir did, I think there's a chance Fjolnir might just let him go if he left. But I think that Amleth would be looking around every corner, expecting to see Fjolnir's men there and seeing foes everywhere he looked and could never be at peace. And this limiting or toxic type of masculinity can affect people of other genders too. Like Queen Gudrun. Yeah, absolutely. That's uh, Amleth's mother, played by Nicole Kidman. She reveals later in the movie that she was once a slave, and but she was a Celtic princess. Yes, in a series of very rapid plot twists. Yeah, and she had been captured in a raid earlier before Amleth was born, and she was captured by his father, or at least claimed by him later. And she was his slave, and then he made her his queen. After she gave birth to a male heir. Right. And so, because he wanted uh, probably to legitimize Omleth as his heir. So, they didn't really have a relationship that was loving. (laughs) (laughs) To say the least. And she did feel like she had that love from the king's brother. Fjolnir. Fjolnir. And she reveals that it was her that begged Fjolnir to kill his brother and her son and to take over because she wanted to be with him. Kind of a jerk move. And so she's also perpetuating this cycle of violence and encouraging a limiting form of masculinity for others because everybody can be trapped by these ideas about gender and it perpetuated on others. Yeah, I mean, it seems like she kind of is aware that the best way to get what she wants is to have the king's brother kill him and then take over the kingdom rather than, say, like, killing her own husband in his sleep, which she probably would have been able to do, hypothetically. But then then she would be deemed a traitor. But Fjolnir can take over because, in this culture, men control the political power. Right. Or the two of them could have run off together, but 
They didn't think of that. No, they usually just jump to violence. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they probably would have thought that uh, the king would have gone after them. Maybe. That's the thing with feuding. It doesn't really stop until people decide to just stop perpetuating the cycle of violence. You have to just make a decision to let your injuries and traumas go and forgive somebody. It's a decision you make. And it's hard to do because both sides in a feud feel like they have a legitimate cause. That's right. And uh, in a kind of funny way, Fjolnir is more progressive than his brother. That is an interesting point. Let's talk about it. King Arvindil is very much a traditionalist. Definitely. Yeah. In the ceremony they take place in, they're giving praise to the All-Father, right? The established religion. And when they're going, when he and his son are going to this sacred temple, right? He's telling him, I walked this path with my father and he walked his path with his father. And one day you're going to walk this path with your son. And so he's establishing that this is a long-held tradition. And he's sort of like the classic Viking romantic ideal, right? Right. Yeah. He He's shown at the beginning coming back from a successful raid. He, like, worships Odin, the classic king of the Norse pantheon. Yeah. He cares more about glory than like love and his family it's true he seems honorable in the way that he defends the fool and he seems to love his family quite a bit and he's trying to pass on the ideals of what it means to rule and fjolnir kills him yeah <laughs> and yeah. the fool and the fool we find out later that he killed willem the foe mm-hmm. and uh fjolnir is interesting because he does what he does Partially for love. Yeah. Yeah. True. That's a great point. And when things don't go his way and he moves to Iceland, he seems to care very much about the family he's constructed. And he's just running a homesteading society. They don't seem to be a raider society. That's a really great point. They don't seem to be going out on raids. They don't even seem to have the manpower to go out on raids. No, they're shepherds. I will say he is not, well, he's not progressive in every instance, obviously. <laughs> no. He, though it is a pretty small community, it is still a very hierarchical structure. Yes, he's he, very concerned with putting on the appearance of strength in front of his slaves. He's like, I'm the chieftain. Everyone will know it and know that my family is above everyone else. Yeah. You can tell by the really rich, vibrant clothes they wear, the way they're like, don't even look at me, right? Yeah. They still have some kind of wealth because they're able to keep quite a few retainers, guards, yeah. and quite a few slaves. Yes. So at the time, that would be a mark of some kind of wealth. Um, and it was hard to keep a living in Iceland. Very yes. poor soil. Well, volcanic soil is actually very good soil. It was not good for growing extensively. It was good for growing a little bit of food, but not for all. It wasn't enough to sustain large populations. Right. And they did take on quite a few slaves, including a man so buff that he would out-eat the entire village. I mean, we know that to prepare for this role, Alexander Sarsgaard had to eat like 
3,000 or 4,000 calories a day. Whoa. So, I mean, think about that. That had to be <laughs> yeah. what they were feeding just as one slave, right? So, I mean, that's, yeah. well, that's they, a lot of food. They were shepherds, so they had a lot of sheep's milk and cheese. Just feed him fat. Yeah, just, yeah, just yeah. pure fat. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Curds all day. <laughs> that's right. But uh, yeah, I thought it was kind of interesting that Fjolnir, aside from the betrayal at the beginning, seemed to be a much, like, not much, but seemed to be closer to a modern character (laughs) than the perspective good guy characters we get. It's an interesting juxtaposition. Fjolnir is still um, unfaithful to Queen Gundred, who he's supposed to love. That's right. Because he keeps Olga around because he intends to um, have her be one of his concubines. concubines. Yeah. She refuses that and rubs her period blood all over his face. And um, Good move. It worked. It did work. He was like, well, you're... You're gross. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, And he left her alone after that. Yeah, she reveals that she's on her period. He's like, oh, it's just a little blood. And she's like, well, then you can have it. And puts the like tan- the like maxi pad right in his face. <laughs> Very funny. Yeah, that, that was the, I would say, a moment of levity in an otherwise... Very serious film. Yes. There's a few of those. There was the farting and burping in the early yeah. ceremony. There was that. And then in the barrow, yes. when um, Omleth is finding the epic magical sword. Fighting the Draugr. He fights a Draugr. And or after the, uh, he the barrow king or defeats whatever. him and decapitates him, he shoves the Draugr's head up his own butt. <laughs> <laughs> Just kind of like in between his legs, into his ass. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Facing his butt. <laughs> he was definitely upset by the interaction. Yeah. <laughs> the think... humor was on brand for us. Yeah. Yes. I was cackling. Um, I think that it was like a way to show like disrespect and like dominance over his foe. He was basically teabagging him. <laughs> Yeah. Which is very fitting for Viking comedy as well. Yes. And he did a T-pose over the corpse. Yes. <laughs> for the two, like, Viking jokes I can think of, one of them was when Loki tied a goat to his balls, and then they smacked the goat so it would hurt his <laughs> balls. Classic, classic Viking humor. And then, like, <laughs> I know in a lot of stories, a classic... <laughs> like viking comedy thing was like right when a guy gets stabbed he's like guess you were pretty good with that weapon better than i thought right (laughs) and so it's so classic like oops a guy died time for a silly one-liner right (laughs) i mean the interesting thing about i i mean i'm not gonna say every single culture but many cultures that have hard scrabble rough lives there's a lot of humor people find ways to relieve the tension of a rough life with a lot of jokes. Yeah. It's, and there are other jokes that some of the other characters make. Yeah. I mean, the movie doesn't have a lot of verbal jokes, but there's a lot of kind of physical and bodily function humor kind of sprinkled throughout it. Yeah. Much in the way that the lighthouse had similar burping, farting jokes That's throughout true. it too. That's true. Th- flinging a chamber pot into the breeze. Yeah. The wrong direction. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. 
It is a moment of levity in a heavy film, but it also... And this is a heavy film. Yeah, it was very brutal. Hard to watch at some points for me. But um, at the same time, it's a part of our lived experience that is so often left out of our media. (laughs) And I kind of like getting that nitty gritty sometimes. That's true. We were mentioning, even while watching it, that it was really not a romanticized version of Vikings, which we often get. When it is showing the berserkers killing the Rus. Yes. It... It's rough. It's bad. Yeah. It's really bad. It starts off badass, but then immediately afterwards, you're like, uh-oh, no, it's not good. Well, actually, yeah, it I starts felt- off with them on the river just killing a guy and his kid for yeah, no, like, right. basically no reason. Yeah. Maybe in their head there was a reason for doing it. No. But the guy who does it is just like laughing and like, hey, guys, I'm a fucking psychopathic murderer. Check me out. I think he was fucking bored, dude. Yeah. Like, in terms of the filmic language, I think they wanted that to set the tone. And it sets the tone. Yeah. And it's just like, oh, fuck. This isn't, like, badass. This is terrible. This is just brutal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it's showing that uh, people who really love war are really scary, troubling people. Yeah. yeah. Throughout the fight, the violence is brutal. The way Omelette is just, like, kind of walking through, like, subtly dodging attacks and just cutting people down and then after the fight when they are rounding up women and children to be uh sold off as slaves and to just kill whoever they don't have use for i mean it is brutal is the best word for it and during the raid scene when it shows him going through the different sections of the town and going past dwellings and stuff and people are freaking out and trying to it's hard to talk about trying to run to their families and, yes. and screaming and trying to be with their loved ones. Oh, it's so hard. Um, there's like kids and stuff. And I couldn't help but think about him when he was a boy Same. trying to escape an, another raid that his uh, on behalf of his uncle and his uncle's men and how he was passing all of the bodies of the people that he knew from his city. Amleth seems like almost aware of the hypocrisy of him perpetuating violence yes. on others that was perpetuated on him but has tamped it down so tightly that he doesn't let it stop him from doing what he's doing. He doesn't participate in the brutality after the fact the way that the other berserkers do. He's like, he's a killer that's his thing. He's not like rounding up slaves. He just kind of goes off and does his own thing he's not- after the fight. Yeah, he's numb to their pain and suffering because he can't feel his own. All he feels is hatred and this burning desire for vengeance. And that really started in that coming of age ceremony with his father when they took his tear. It's symbolic of them trying to strip away his access to his own emotions, uh, which they do. Yeah. And that is how... Limiting masculinity is perpetuated in in symbolic form. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's so we they talk about this in the movie, like they state the expected behaviors of men in their culture. They're supposed to like they they quote the Havamal, which is the words of the High One from the Edda, which are the Viking myths and stories. They're quoting lines about you know when you enter 
a room. You have to look around to make sure there's no enemies around. Like everything is about being prepared for violence that they are using as like the framework for how Amleth and his people behave. Yeah, that's right. Religion, their religion is a massive part of the movie. Yes. Yes. We were joking around after watching it that, uh, well, Amleth and his father were both worshippers of Odin. That's right. Their village seemed to be a big Odin-worshipping village. Uh, a lot of ravens. That's right. Fjolnir, in his village, they seem to deify, they seem to give honor to the god Freyr. A harvest god. That's right. And we were like, isn't Freyr also a god of war? And we were like, aren't all Norse gods gods of war? <laughs> yeah. To some extent, Freyr and his twin sister Freya, who's a goddess of love and also war. Yeah. And Tyr is just literally the god of war and justice. <laughs> I thought that was interesting because they are twin gods and Omleth is going to be having a set of twins and the female is... A beautiful warrior maiden king. I just realized that Tyriel, the god of war, or the angel of justice from the Diablo series, Tyr. his Tyr in his name, and he's the angel of justice. Yeah. <laughs> Tyr eel. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I, I was this many years old when I <laughs> realized that Tyriel is Tyr. Great. Eel means um, of God. Yeah, tear of God. <laughs> yes. Not tear, like crying, but tear, the name, T-Y-R. That's or, right. Also pronounced tweer. Yes. But yeah, so, I mean, the expectations of gender in this movie are really interesting, though. We see what is perpetuated by the culture at large, let's say, right? This, what we'll call the Viking ideal of masculinity. But they point out in the movie that Odin is a male deity who they say gave his eye to learn feminine magic. That's not the reading of the myth that I know. The reading of the myth I know is that he, uh, he put his eye in the well of Mimir for the power of foresight and knowledge. But Odin did study feminine magic with yes. the Volva. Yeah. Which are uh, Norse magic woman. Right. Uh, I, I've heard... Uh interpretations that magic in general was a feminine thing. Yes. So just the fact that he got magic could yeah. be seen as feminine. And that is something they highlight in the movie is that all women have access to this magical ability. And most of the magical people are women, but there is one male character. Yes, and I, I was just leading up to talk about this character who is called the He-Witch, yes. which is such a cool name. And yes. This is the character that Omleth meets on basically a shamanic vision quest where he goes into a cave and meets this big, burly dude who's a magic user. So he's kind of been cast in this feminine role. I just want to put a little detail in there real quick. And it's that he finds this cave by following a fox friend that he made. Yeah. <laughs> who seems to like they have a mutual respect for one another. And the fox leads him to the cave. When the fox goes in the cave and Omelith follows a few moments after, the fox is gone. But then the he witch is holding a hammer for his drum. Uh, a shaman's drum. 
And on the like shaft of the hammer is tied a fox's pelt and you see the tail hanging down. And it's almost like the fox is one of his helping spirits or he was the fox transformed. Right. Nice. Yeah. I just wanted to get that detail in there. Yeah. I thought it was no, weird. that was really, that was a good catch that you found. I also have to mention about uh, this man practicing feminine magics and the leader of the Norse gods also knowing feminine magic, Viking uh, femboy supremacy. Yes, absolutely. Yes. yes. Although uh, I have made the argument before that Odin is a pan-gender all-parent. I think that's accurate. <laughs> yes, I like that. But uh, That's good. You know, at least femboy. Yeah. At bare minimum. Bare minimum, yeah. Yes. Yeah. But so the he witch has the head of Willem Dafoe, Hamir the Fool, and this is how he kind of reconnects with Omleth, right? He uh the the he witch tells the story about how King Fjolnir had Hamir killed. Hamir is the fool, right? He's the character at the beginning of the movie who is saying the truth that is uncomfortable that people don't want to hear. But he has a role that is respected because he is the one who can say the truth to the king. Fjolnir doesn't like that and has him killed. But this is also the character who conducted the magical initiation for Omleth and his father, who was a respected advisor. Yeah. While also being kind of a court jester. Right. That's why I was calling him a sacred fool. Because he he kind of has multiple roles that yeah. he plays. So the other interesting gender juxtaposition that I noticed in the movie that I wanted to talk about was so much of the violence throughout the film was perpetuated by men, right? Yeah. There are We know that there were female Viking warriors. Yes. But they are not represented in the movie, except there's a very poignant moment and in a very important character who doesn't have a lot of screen time but the Valkyrie. Yes. Yes. And the Valkyrie were Odin and also Freya's harbingers of war who came down on the battlefield. And these were shield maidens, so women warriors who collected the fallen soldiers to go to Valhalla and join either the armies of Odin or Freya. They were psychopomps. They helped lead the honored dead to the halls of the gods yes and to be selected by a valkyrie you had to be you had to die in battle and to show great skill in war and yeah. then you'd go to the halls to battle and to be part of odin's army or freya's army more people know about odin's army right that is what is emphasized in the movie but so yeah there is all these male warriors throughout the film but there is this very important scene where we see the valkyrie like riding her winged horse off a cliff and then like she's charging in the battle and she has these tattooed teeth and this yeah. grimace of just like rage and war frenzy. And she's screeching. Yeah. And uh, looks incredibly fierce. I would not fuck with her. No, me neither. <laughs> but and then she has long blonde wavy hair, which is kind of in the movie paralleled with Olga. And Queen Gunnarud. Yes. There were two visions of the Valkyrie, which was cool. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it, it definitely, I know we touched on it a little. I'll just say it again. It was weird the amount they revered women, but were still patriarchal. Yes. 
Because women definitely seemed they they exploit women a lot. Yes. Like I mean that's yeah, uh Gudrun's whole backstory. It could have just been because they were slave women. It wasn't just because they were slave no. women. The men definitely have the power in these societies. And there's a sign that's going to change because Omleth's daughter is going to become a king. But, like, they talk about how Odin learned the feminine magic, the wisdom that belongs to women. And they have Valkyries, these warrior women, and they take the strong warriors to the afterlife. And they're scary as all hell. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh... What's the what? What are you doing to the human women? What's going on there? Yeah, it's a weird double standard. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But there is also the fear of feminine power in the movie and kind of more broadly in Viking culture because of the association, the association with magic and the ability to cast spells. I mean, Olga uses this mystique of her ability to charm people and to use her magics to threaten and to get her way and it kind of seems to work throughout the movie in certain ways like Fjolnir is getting ready to just kind of ditch all of these slaves but she wants to stay with Omleth and stay on the farm to help him get revenge and suddenly like Fjolnir is like oh and keep her too yeah at first glance he isn't going to keep any of them but then when his youngest son says well mother needs help in the kitchens and the barn and he says, okay, we'll keep a few of them. And, uh, oh, her. Yeah. <laughs> like, he suddenly notices her. Yeah. But Olga also knows the magic of pharmacology. Yeah. She uses psychedelic mushrooms to poison Fjolnir soldiers to be part of Amla's uh, plan to attack the, farms. the kingdom, the yeah. farms. Yeah, that was so cool. There's a scene where he and Olga are having sex out in the woods. Very cool. And, yeah. it's, and it's like black and white, like the other supernatural scenes, when she starts praying to the earth. Right? Yeah. Yes. She rubs her hands along the dirt while she's praying to it and giving thanks. And then she pulls something out of it and hands it to him. And it's one of the mushrooms that they use to attack the soldiers with. And... uh it's portrayed very much as, like, divine smiting, right? Yeah. Everything Amleth is doing to these people. They interpret it supernaturally. Yes. Yes. The first time Amleth strikes out, he slaughters a bunch of the prince's friends and nails them to a house in the shape of, like, Slepnir, it yeah. looks like. The eight-legged yeah. horse of Odin. And they're like, who did this, right? The prince is like shouting at the slaves and the priestess is like, yo, that's a demon. Yeah. That's demon shit. That's not <laughs> a slave, right? Yeah. And Amleth is kind of demon power. He right? is, yeah. And another guard says to Fjolnir, you know, maybe this is the work of the christian followers because right. their deity is a corpse nailed to a tree <laughs> yeah that was a high impact line very yeah. funny <laughs> yeah i was like technically true this guy makes a lot of sense <laughs> i don't totally understand the context <laughs> if all you knew about christianity was that your slaves the people you are oppressing like it and like that imagery I get why you would be spooked. Yeah. So, guys, there's this thing 
It's the elephant in the room. We got to talk about it. And that, of course, is class struggle. Okay. And of course, we've been talking about it up to this point, right? Omleth is the son of a chieftain who has to give up his nobility, for lack of a better word, go out, strike out on his own, build his own career as a um, violent warband member. He takes on a role of slavery, the lowest class that you can be in, right? Electively to commit regicide. Talk about the bottom attacking the top. You know what I'm saying? But from the top and also the bottom. (laughs) That's right. I was just laughing because of how funny the idea of calling it nobility is. Because to our sensibilities, it's not noble. He's not a noble character at all. No, not really. But in their sensibilities, he's a very noble character, right? He would be, in the culture as portrayed in the film, he would be lionized as one of the great warriors, right? Like he Yes. Is, he is living the life that is expected of people in his society. He is but a one-man apocalypse. By modern standards, they're more like psychopaths. That's <laughs> right. Yeah, absolutely. But, so there's this interesting tension, right, where... We've got the slaves, and Amleth is fighting not to free them, but through his actions, gets them freed. (laughs) He doesn't care too much about the other slaves or what happens to them. No. Until the end when he finally does free whoever's left. Yeah. So there is an interesting kind of awareness and unawareness of class that Amleth has, and I feel like to a further extent, the movie is less aware of what it's saying about class than it might be saying those things, right? Yeah. So there's the general class hierarchy that we've talked about, but then there's also hierarchy amongst genders. And so we've said that, you know, it's a patriarchy, so males have a higher status than females. Yes. And throughout most of the movie, we see that being perpetuated um, amongst the humans. (laughs) But there is an interesting juxtaposition to that stance. And that's the relationship uh, that develops eventually between Olga and Omleth. Uh, They eventually become partners and like equals. Yeah. And they save each other at different times. And they that shows that they are vulnerable to each other and dependent on one another at different times and so they kind of take on the dominant role they trade it off right there's a little give and take in their relationship at least in the way they talk to each other when they're conspiring it's more like equals she has ideas and he listens to them and she contributes to the plan just as much as he does and he trusts her and what she says and trusts her to enact part of the plan, like an equal. Right. And they are intellectual equals in that. And uh, he trusts himself around her when he's the most vulnerable. 
Yeah, being around Olga is the only time that he's really willing to break down this facade of tough guy like machismo, right? She gets through his <laughs> prickly exterior to get to his prickly interior exterior and starts to wake up his heart again. He says something to that effect near the end when they're at the hot springs. Right. But yeah, so I mean, I just feel like this movie could have said a lot more about class and kind of fails to make a larger point, even though it is hinging very much on this idea of transitioning between class roles, right? Like, Amleth even kind of gets, like, he takes on the role of a slave, but then he's, like, elevated to the net, like to the slightly higher level being in charge of other people, but he's told that he'll never be nobility, even though we know as the audience that he was the chieftain's son, that he was going to be a future king or chieftain or whatever. So he kind of has this weird place where he never sees himself as a member of this for lack of a better word, lower class. He always sees himself as being above everybody else in a lot of ways because he's this distinguished warrior. Yeah, he's kind of undercover. Yeah. And it very much romanticizes the role and ability of people who are born to distinction. Like, it is creating this idea like, oh, well, the king is actually a really good warrior and the prince really became a great warrior. But this is a culture, like, it's weird, right? Because there's a hereditary element of this, but these characters do earn distinction through their actions. Right. They're not resting on their laurels within the fiction of the film as much as real-life leaders often do. And he does go on this quest. It's a prophesied quest. He gets a magical artifact to help him. He has advice that he gets from spiritual teachers and he's kind of helped along the way by the gods and their constituents like valkyries uh so that's that's all really neat that that's all included i liked that but um it's interesting that it has all those trappings of a fantasy movie but that it's not associated with like a noble hero it's all associated with this brutal killer who's seeking vengeance against his family. Yeah. And it it's very off-putting and disconcerting. <laughs> but I think it's, it's totally intentional. <laughs> oh, yeah. I think a lot of it's very deliberate, for sure. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, before we move on, I just think we should talk a little bit about anthropologist's favorite thing to talk about, and that's ritual. Yes. Because this is a movie that portrays a lot of ritual in pretty good detail. We've got the initiation ritual that Amleth undergoes in the cave with uh, his father and the noble fool. We've got um, funerary rites that occur like when Amleth kills his stepbrother, the ki uh, King Fjolnir's uh, son, oldest son. Uh, they have this funeral that is based in real world Viking history where they sacrifice a slave and a horse to send with Fjolnir's son into the afterlife. And they do like the, sh the burial ship and everything. I thought it was his widow. It was probably a slave to be his servant. Okay. Cause she was talking about seeing her husband hmm. in the afterlife. Possibly if it was his wife, then they did not establish that. Well, 
or there might be like an element of like a sacred marriage, like a sacred posthumous marriage. She was with everybody who was at the ball game. She was in like the stands with all the other noble people. You could see her in the shot. She just wasn't a very well established character. Yeah. Well, either way, um, they kill her to, as part of the sacrifice to send Fjolnir's son into the afterlife. They also sacrifice a horse as part of the ritual to be help, his steed. Yeah. Well, to help them get to the afterlife faster. And then after this, um, Queen Gudrun sprinkles Fjolnir and his now only surviving son with the blood that was from the horse to kind of represent this idea that, okay, your son has died. You're not going to cry anymore. Like this ritual is supposed to be the erection of a wall that will stop you from feeling anything afterwards about the death. Like you've done your mourning, you've cried. Now you're supposed to move on. That is not how grieving works for one, but the idea of rituals of life transitions makes a lot of sense historically speaking that is often what cultures have it's true yeah and during that ceremony i thought it was so great they were referencing some of the poetry of norse mythology the ada the priestess was reading i i heard the lines uh der dea frender der tjörveret sama and i was like oh i recognize that yeah. hell yeah i did too i was like oh boy Do you have the translation for that um let's see i know it's like man, uh, cattle die kings die one day you two will die yeah, what, yeah. what doesn't die is the glory that we earn in life something yeah, yeah. along those lines that is another line from Havamal, which they cite earlier when they're talking about spying when you enter a doorway and everything yeah mm-hmm. that's from the Havamal also yeah nice it yeah. was really interesting to see how ritual is a framework for everybody's lives. Yes. And it marks important rites of passage, like you're saying. Yeah. It's a way to take notice of big things that happen. Right. And to reinforce the worldview of the culture, too. Because each ritual includes elements of their mythology, uh, which are sacred stories of a culture. And includes important cultural ideologies in them as well. Yeah, and I thought they did a really good job of portraying that in the movie and yeah. showing that importance without being like, okay, like, boy, ritual sure is important to our culture, right? Let's explain what these rituals are. Like, you would have to know about some of these practices to understand what's happening in the film. So, as somebody who's studied ritual and specifically pagan rituals of northern European countries, I recognized many of the elements that we saw in the rituals, and I thought that it was it was good. Like they obviously worked with either a historian or an expert of some type. They worked with consultants for sure. Yeah, and they they got a uh, it wasn't perfect, but they got a lot of it right. Yeah. And one more ritual I want to talk about before we move on is the Berserker Rage Initiation, or like the Berserker, uh, I'll just call it the Rage Initiation, where they are- Is that around the campfire? That's around the campfire where they're howling and this guy's saying like, you need to 
let your bare brain take over your man flesh and like let out the wolf and all this stuff. And so real life berserkers, we don't know every single element. Some people think that um, psilocybin or, you know, magic mushrooms or whatever were part of it. But there's also just the possibility that berserkers would put themselves into a rage by causing themselves pain and kind of anguish, tugging on their beards, chewing on their shields, hitting themselves and rolling around and just like kind of acting animalistically. And it would put them in this trance-like battle state. Yeah. And that is what they are representing in this scene where they are symbolically transforming into beasts. Right. And I thought that was a really interesting scene, really fitting for the movie and for the themes and everything. If, you know, the implications are troubling, it is still fitting within the framework that this is a violent story representing a violent time. And they are showing how we think that real life people conducted these rituals and entered these altered states of consciousness to prepare for different types of events, whether it was a funerary rite or to get ready for a big battle. Right. Uh, it was also interesting you bringing up the berserker rage ritual. <laughs> I felt throughout the film that for the most part, the intent was not to humanize the main character. I agree. He seemed more like an animal. I mean, humans are animals, but more like a beast. Yes. Like we, you said, akin to a bear or a wolf, a predator. Um, and the word berserker means bear shirt. Yes. Or the one who wears a bear shirt. And they were wearing bear and wolf hides. Yeah. And that means, like, yeah, the, wearing the skin of a, a wild animal, basically. Like, metaphorically, but sometimes also literally. It was in his actions and his behaviors towards other people. He didn't speak very much. He was not in touch with his emotions not often in touch with his higher cognitive function until it changes when it slowly starts to change when he becomes a slave of his own volition to get back at his uncle and to get close to him. He still has that connection to beasts through the fox, but his connection to Olga is what starts to humanize him. Yeah. And it's through love. That he starts to become in touch with his emotions. That's right. He basically isn't living his own life throughout most of the movie. Good point. Yes. He's living out the vow to his father, and he's just being fueled by his anger and obligation. And when he's speaking with Olga, she's like, what of, like, you know, the life we could live together? He's like, all I've ever known is revenge. Once that's settled, maybe I'll see if life is worth living, yeah. right? Yeah. It's like, oh, he hasn't even tried to enjoy life. And I liked it when he was with Olga. He reminded me a lot more of who he was as a little boy, right? Oh, yeah. good point. Yeah. He, like, actually cared about another person and was, like, enjoying the moment. He moments. was vulnerable. And he said to her, like... I never thought I would could be close to someone like this. Yeah, that's right. So it, it gave him some perspective aside from what he had been doing for who knows how long. 20 years, 30 years. Yeah. Yeah. They uh, just... The actor's in his 40s, I think. So we'll, we'll right. guess somewhere along those lines. Another piece of vulnerability he had that wasn't part of the revenge 
was he was made to participate in a slave sport. Yes. That was similar to lacrosse, from it looked like. Yeah. And, but you have clubs and you beat the hell out of each other, like lacrosse. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, Just like lacrosse. For, all my friends who played lacrosse, they were somehow horribly wounded every uh, constantly. So I imagine it's identical. They give you sticks. That's right. And uh, he's participating in this slave event, and his younger half-brother runs in to participate in the fight, and he gets wounded, and it sends him into, like, a battle rage, and he, like, nearly beats the guy to death who hurt his half-brother. poor kid got hit by the mountain from Game of Thrones. That's right. (laughs) And that that was a really neat scene, because it was clear not just to the audience, but to the other characters that he really cared about this kid for some reason. And uh, his older half-brother acknowledges it later. He's like, I saw what you did for my younger brother. Right. I want you to know I acknowledge your loyalty to us, and I'm going to reward you for that. He doesn't understand what's going on. No. But it was so blatant that he had affection for the younger boy. Yes. The two, yeah, the Fjolnir's two kids definitely loved each other, it seemed like. Yeah, yeah. It seemed like their whole family had an affection for one another. Yeah. Twisted, though, it may have been. But also, uh, Amleth had affection for the younger brother. Yes. Which is why it's a bummer. He kills that kid later in the movie, and he seems to feel really bad about it. He does. He says, I'll avenge you. And I was like, oh, well, we know what that means, or at least I do, because- A vengeance to him means killing, Murder. and if he's the killer, he himself has to die. Yeah, I, I think that consciously he's thinking that Fjolnir is the cause of it, mm-hmm. but yeah, I mean, the reality is that he, Amleth, is the one who murders his entire family Yeah, at that point. every Everyone that he has left who could have been his family, he kills. And... His uncle, Fjolnir, is fighting him out of vengeance for his family at that point. Yeah. But also, it's like he's grieving. He lost so many so quickly. And uh, it's it's just really tragic. And they kill each other at the same time. Yeah, the movie's a bummer, man. <laughs> as far as that goes. Yeah. But hey, why don't we talk a little bit more about that in the smithy? Welcome to the Smithy, where we each forge a rating for this movie after we share an epic moment or feature from the film. Jack, do you want to tell us your epic moment or feature and then give us a rating from 1 to 10 Nightblades? Yes, I will give you an epic moment or feature, and it is the Nightblade. Nice! (laughs) That's right. It's just so cool. I love a good magic sword. Same. Most magic swords... How are they even magical? They're normally barely or vaguely magical. But this one is magical in the sense that it cuts through flesh really effectively. (laughs) It was forged by fantastical beings. Made of the hardest metal. I'm guessing meteorite? That wouldn't be the hardest metal. (laughs) However, it's cool. So I'll accept it. (laughs) It looks like 
practically the prop is of Damascus steel. Damascus like it, yeah. steel, like Excalibur from the movie Excalibur. <laughs> King Arthur, Legend of the Sword. Yes, that's right. That's the one. Which we like to call Excalibur, even though there's also a movie about King Arthur called Excalibur. Right, right. Well, anyway, we get to see it being made in a mountain and yes. them like hammering runes into it. So, so cool. cool. Very, very cool. And also it it has a curse on it yep. where it cannot be unsheathed except at nighttime, which is awesome because living weapons, uh, that gives it a personality, right? Yeah. yeah. It's not l- necessarily a living weapon, but it feels like it has like a soul. Yeah. Which is cool. And uh, it's he has to get it from the Draugr yeah. in a really cool fight in like a like a ship that's underground. It's part of a burial mound. Yeah, which is so cool. Everything around this sword is awesome, and he buries it under a roof. He talks to it. Yes, yeah, he does. I mean, wouldn't you? Yeah. It definitely has a soul, right? Yeah. And he takes it out at night when he's enacting his vengeance. It's He's fated to use it to kill his uncle. Yeah. So just about as cool as it gets, right? Mm-hmm. Uh... Great storytelling. It has its own arc and plot and (laughs) character. Much like the sword from King Arthur, Legend of the Sword. That's right. And uh, I just think it's so neat. Very cool. Very well done. Love it. And uh, the movie in general, very brutal. Yes. I know we mentioned it's like Hamlet. I like Hamlet. (laughs) And uh, it could have used more Willem Dafoe. Yes. More... Rosencrantz and Guildenstern energy. Yeah. It had a good vibe. The movie brings really powerful vibes. I couldn't stop thinking about it. That's for sure. It's true. Me neither. And uh, it has some very clear themes. I just wish uh, it was a little straightforward is the one thing I would bash it on. It's just it was kind of predictable, I felt. With, like, where the story was going. They kind of, like Shakespeare, they kind of told you right at the beginning how the film was going to go. Yeah, Bjork did. And there were a lot of little details sprinkled throughout that are like, oh, he hooks up with Olga. That's cool. And they're going to have a maiden kid, right? And and that's all good. But it just, uh, I think the best way that this movie made its story really unique was that he almost left with Olga. I thought that was a really good moment and it was very cool. Uh, I did not expect that. That's right. Me neither. I didn't expect him to fall in in love. So Me neither. But the movie is so cool. I love Eggman. (laughs) Where does this fall on your Egger scale? It's probably at the bottom of the three movies. Oh, wow. Wow. But that's because I revere the other two so highly. Uh, I'm probably going to give this movie 8 out of 10 Nightblades. It's got such a good vibe. I'm going to watch it a bunch of times. And uh, I can't wait to show it to more people. Nice. So uh, 8 out of 10. Great suit. Great mill. When Jack (laughs) says he's going to show a movie to other people, we know it's a winner. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I haven't shown Nomeo and Juliet to anyone yet. That's coming. <laughs> How about you, Chelsea? What's your epic moment or feature? And then you're rating from one to ten night blades. Well, I think my epic feature is going to be all the bodily functions of the movie. 
That makes sense. I think it helps to create the comedic, <laughs> much needed comedic moments, like we were saying, to give you a little bit of relief for all the relentless, relentless violence and brutality. And it serves to humanize the characters. There's, I think. there's burping and farting and menstruation. Yep. Was there more? I feel like, oh, there's puking there's after puking. the mushrooms. And I assume shitting, like diarrhea from the mushrooms. Yeah, there. they shitted. There's bleeding. There's <laughs> a lot of bleeding. Various kinds of bleeding. Yeah. There's um, bleating, mm-hmm. like from sheep. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I thought that was really interesting. Just the, like Great word to describe it. Well, <laughs> not everybody includes that stuff in their movies or media. I agree. To me, it makes it a much more grounded film, if that makes sense. I think so. That's why I liked it. Definitely. Uh, so, overall, I have to agree with a lot of what Jack said. I did like the part about the them falling in love. I wasn't sure if they were going to go there or not. I wasn't sure if they were going to, like, draw a correlation between Olga and his mother, Queen Gundren, but they didn't. She did seem to genuinely love Omelith. So, I thought that was unique. I did not expect that. Oh, man. All of the locations and sets were so amazing and, like, carefully thought out. For some historical accuracy while also being kind of timeless Mm -hmm. due to the supernatural aspects. And also kind of takes you out of the film because there are many scenes that are intentionally set to be reminiscent of a theatrical stage. So that was interesting too. I'm going to give it an 8 out of 10 Nightblades. Yeah, I think they could have added a little bit of nuance to the story, like Jack was saying. But it was an amazing film, nonetheless. Yeah. What about you, Jamie? What's your epic moment or feature and your rating out of 1 to 10 Nightblades? Yeah, Jamie, please tell us. (laughs) I'm gonna. Thank you for the opportunity. My (laughs) epic feature is going to be encapsulated by an epic moment. My epic feature is what I'm going to call the uncertain fantasy, which we've seen in other films such as I Kill Giants, where Hmm. there are elements of the movie that make you as an audience member wonder what's really happening, if there's a fantasy element here or not. Right. And the scene is actually the Barrow fight, where Omleth is going to get the night sword. He tries to grab it from the Draugr King. The King... Draugr or whatever, the Barrow King, like, holds it back and then starts rising up and attacks Omelette. And he has to go through this really brutal Dark Souls fight, like, unarmed, (laughs) where he's, like, hitting him with, like, cauldrons and dodge rolling and getting just beat the shit with, like, shield bashes and stuff. And he finally disarms the Barrow King, gets the sword, beheads him, sticks his head up his ass. (laughs) And then the camera pans left and we see omelette standing in front of the borrow king as he's seated just as like he came in and he just grabs the sword and then the borrow king falls apart right and as the audience you go what just happened yeah did this undead just rise up and fight or is this a vision quest mm-hmm. or a vision that omelette is having 
And here's the thing. In my opinion, it doesn't really matter what's really happening. Yes. Right? Yeah. This is the worldview. We are experiencing a world of magical reality that a lot of cultures still believe in today. Right? Yeah. A lot of people in different northern countries still believe in land fairies and stuff like that. It is as much a part of reality as we think of as like dogs and cats and cars and everything. Yeah. These are facts of the world in a certain cultural viewpoint. So whether Omelette is having a spiritual moment or a real moment in many of the things he experiences, the way that the Nightblade won't unsheath, is it not unsheathing or does he just know that it's not time and his instinct is telling him it's not time to fight. You can't unsheathe your blade yet. Now there is evidence for that one because one of the soldiers, the one, the noseless, yes. snub nose, that is his title. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The nose stub, yeah. Yeah. When Omleth is tied up and being tortured, the nose snub tries to draw the sword several times and yeah. it won't unsheath. He tries his hardest and eventually he just leaves it in the chamber because it it's useless. Right. He doesn't think of it as a weapon. But yeah, the, the fact that uh, No Stub can't draw the sword does seem to imply a little bit of magic, but there could be other explanations for it. It seems like Odin sends his ravens to free Omleth. That's right. It's hard to know what's going on there. Ravens do come to dead bodies or, you know, wounded people to, to scavenge carrion. That's true. And also, uh, Bjork's prophecy does unfold. Yeah. So I think there's a lot of evidence to support the magical worldview, but I like that it adds those elements of, is this quote unquote real magic or is this the magic that they see the world as? And like I said, at the end of the day, I don't think it really matters. The It's also a great like way to tell a story visually through the medium of film. Yeah, totally. So that's my epic feature. I have been having a hard time coming up with a rating for this movie. I have been thinking about the film a lot. I feel like I could talk about it for another 10 hours and I wouldn't unpack everything that I experienced watching the film. Yeah, I totally understand how you feel because it's like, it's an amazing film and it's hard to watch. too. Yes, <laughs> it is brutal and bloody and violent. But while I was watching, I was like, oh man, this is a movie I got to own. And then by the end, I was like, oh man, I don't know if I can watch that movie again. And I can't. It's not like other movies that I've watched where I'm like, I just can't. Like, there is so much going on in this movie that I found really interesting. Yeah. I am going to give this movie 9 out of 10 Nightblades. Okay. Nice. And here's the reason why. I believe that the movie is critical of the cycle of revenge and violence. Yeah. I think a lot of people are going to come out of this movie with the wrong interpretation. What I think is the wrong interpretation, which is cool, tough guy Vikings are so cool and tough. And also violence is so cool to watch and everything. And I like violent films. I'm a fan of action movies. I love revenge stories. I did not enjoy the revenge in this movie the way I enjoy like action movies about revenge. I enjoyed that it ended the way that I needed it to end with Omelette dying. And that might be a controversial opinion, but to me that cinches the idea that somebody whose life is so completely 
thrown to violence is going to meet a violent end. Yeah. That it is not going to be a happy ending. He's not going to to get the girl and ride off in the sunset like a cowboy western movie hero. He pays the ultimate price for living life the way he lived. Yeah. And I think that if personally I think that if he had survived it would have undermined so much else that happens in the movie and so many of the other themes that we've discussed here today. And because the director chose a bold ending, I'm going to give him a bold rating. Nine out of 10 night blades. Very enjoyable film. If I can call it that for what it is, one of the best action dramas I've ever seen. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, It's a tragedy. Yeah. I mean, it just perfectly captures Shakespearean or Greek tragedy storytelling so well and you know on that note i think that'll pretty much do it for us here at swords and satire for a real fun light one but as always if you enjoyed this episode maybe consider following us on social media at swords and satire on facebook instagram and twitter so that you can keep up with the show get in touch with us if you want to let us know what you think about the movies and check out our memes that's right And if you have a few extra coins to toss your favorite fantasy movie podcasters, or even if you're just finding us out for the first time, you're like, damn, I like these guys. You can head over to patreon.com slash swords and satire and join our patron community, select one of the tiers that works for you and become a supporter of the show. And you get a lot of cool perks. You should go check out what we offer over there. That's right. It's pretty dang good. But if you don't have a few extra bucks to slide toward your favorite podcasters, us, (laughs) another great way you can support the show is by sharing it with your friends or family. Spreading the word helps us out. We really appreciate you guys. And what better way to show your appreciation to the people you care about than sharing the media you care about? That's a great point, Jack. Do it. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, next week we'll be talking about another episode of The Wheel of Time. But until then, Hail Hail Crom! Crom!